A friend's daughter has been into captioning artwork recently. Um, this weekend's design was an intricate pickle uh, with not one or even two, but four thought bubbles over this pickle. And the title of this piece was The Worried Pickle. The, the thought bubbles illustrate the fears that are consuming the pickle at the moment. A chef's knife. After all, what pickle would want to be cut up and put on a hamburger? Uh, a, a bowl of soup. That would be an interesting bowl of soup, in my opinion. Uh, a hand reaching to steal it. Uh, and, and a question mark. Uh, this pickle is worried about many things, obviously. One of them is unknown. Maybe you can identify with the worried pickle. Uh, maybe you are the worried pickle from day to day. What, what causes you to fear, tremble? What, what events or what potential events swell up within your heart throughout the day? Uh, maybe there are some things that are known uh, that generate fear. Uh, maybe there are some things that are, that are unknown. Maybe even something that you know about the character of God generates fear within you. Do you, do you tremble before God? Should we tremble before God? There's only one right answer to that question. And to discover the answer to that question and what we should do with our fears with respect to God, we turn this morning to Psalm 114. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 114. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage on page 510. 510. Over the last several weeks, we've been studying through a handful of psalms. The psalms were the prayer and hymn book of the ancient people of God. These were the songs that they, they sang to one another in corporate worship, like we've been singing songs to one another this morning. These were the, the prayers that they prayed beside their beds, the poems through which they expressed their fears and their failures to God. These are the ballads through which they confessed their sins and, and expressed their, their confidence, too, in God's mercy. These psalms were not just for the ancient people of God. They're also for us. They're written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. They're for us. These songs and poems and prayers are meant to move us and make us more like Jesus, the one to whom they point. In fact, Psalm 114 is the second in a group of psalms known as the Egyptian Hillel. The Psalms, Psalms 113 to 118 make up what's known as the Egyptian Hillel. These Egyptian Hillel Psalms would have been sung during the celebration of Passover. The Passover was that night in which God rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. Israel, they, they sacrificed a lamb and they spread its blood over the doorposts of their home and over the lintel. And in doing so, they were protected from the judgment of God sweeping through Egypt. Psalms 113 to 118 were sung to remember and commemorate God's saving kindness to Israel. Stop and, and consider this for a moment. This morning we're, we're reading and studying a psalm that would have been on the lips of Jesus during the last week of his life. 
Jesus may have even sung this psalm when he celebrated his Passover feast with his disciples. Remember, that was the night in which Jesus was betrayed and the Lord's Supper was instituted. Consider that these words were on the lips of Jesus as he knowingly approached his death. Jesus sang praise to God with his death days, if not hours away. Jesus undoubtedly saw something of his cross work in these psalms. And the focus of Psalm 114 is is not hard to see. It shines through the, the main imperative in the psalm. The work of God in the history of his people is poetically announced. And then we are told this. Tremble. Tremble before your God. That's the message of Psalm 114. And if you are looking for the main point of the whole psalm, and therefore the main point of the sermon, it's this. Tremble before the God who makes His saving power known through His presence. Tremble before the God who makes His saving power known through His presence. Listen for that truth in the psalm. Please follow along as I read Psalm 114. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains that you skip like rams, O hills like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. The first six verses of this psalm especially speak of what God did and accomplished in the Exodus from Egypt. How he made himself known in giving the law at Mount Sinai and the conquest of the promised land. Since these verses would have undoubtedly evoked God's power in the minds of the ancient Israelite, we need to turn back to those events and refamiliarize ourselves with them. We need to be, in some sense, overwhelmed and awed at the power of God on behalf of his people. While Psalm 114 is and will be the the central text for our sermon, we need to understand the prologue of crucial texts that are informing our understanding of this psalm. Remember, the, the Bible is the one true story of God bringing his people into his place under his rule through his son. And as we grapple with any single text... We need to keep the whole text of Scripture in mind. So we're now going to spend a good bit of time making our way around the Bible. In order to understand the power of God as presented here in Psalm 114, we're going to need to unpack phrases like, When Israel went out from Egypt, verse 1. The sea looked and fled, verse 3. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs, verse 4. And others. But let's begin with a phrase that opens the psalm there in verse 1. When Israel went out from Egypt. 
To, to understand something of what ancient Israelites would have understood by that phrase, turn in your Bibles back to the book of Exodus, specifically Exodus chapter 11. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 53, I believe. Page 53, Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapters 11 and 12, which we're going to kind of skip through those chapters, these two chapters explain to us that Israel didn't merely leave Egypt. Rather, God powerfully brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. It's not as if Israel kind of you know, woke up one morning and decided that they want to travel from Fairfax to Arlington, right? It's not as though they decided, you know, I think I'd like to leave Egypt today. No, enslaved people don't have the freedom to move about the earth like that. They had to be set free. As we step into the Exodus narrative, we need to remember that upon hearing the cry of the enslaved people of Israel, the Lord God called and commissioned Moses to go and ask Pharaoh to free Israel. Moses was to request that Israel be freed in order to make a journey into the wilderness and worship God. Worship was the explicit purpose and goal of Israel's departure from Egypt. Moses and his brother Aaron went to Pharaoh time and time again, nine times, in fact, to demand that he let God's people go. Pharaoh rejected each of Moses and Aaron's requests, even in the face of incredible plagues. Water was turned to blood. Frogs, gnats, and flies invade the land. A plague befalls beasts. Boils cover bodies. Hail falls from the sky. Locusts lick up everything that is worth eating. And a darkness that can be physically felt has descended upon the land. In Exodus 11, we discover that one plague still remains. The worst one of all. And in this section, Moses, he warns Pharaoh about the plague. He prepares Israel for the plague, giving them instructions on how they might avoid its calamities and how they should be prepared to leave Egypt. Follow along as I read just the first verse for now in Exodus chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more will I bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Now, as this chapter opens, the Lord tells Moses that there remains yet one plague more. And on, on the previous occasions when these plagues were occurring, when the Lord told Moses that another plague was coming, he also told him that Pharaoh would not let the people of Israel go. But here, the Lord tells Moses that this punishing plague would result in the freedom of Israel. And as the, the chapter unfolds, we learn in verses 4 to 8 that all the firstborn of Egypt shall die. Every house shall be touched by death, no matter how rich or how poor. Even the firstborn of the cattle will die. Along with this punishment, there will come preservation. Skip ahead to verse 7 of Exodus chapter 11. Verse 7, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. The Lord preserved Israel before from, from some of the nine plagues. And this, of course, is the most important plague to be preserved from. It's interesting, too, to consider who the Lord's judgment will fall upon. The firstborn sons of Egypt. 
If you're familiar with the book of Exodus, do you remember who Pharaoh went after early on in the book of Exodus? When Israel was multiplying, Pharaoh gave instructions to the Hebrew midwives and to, to all Egyptians to kill the sons of Israel. Pharaoh was unsuccessful in his plot. He didn't have that power, but Yahweh does. Pharaoh didn't hold in his hands the power of life and death, but Yahweh does. After Moses tells Pharaoh that of this certain punishment in Exodus uh, chapter 11, verse 7, he, he adds in verse 8 that as a result of this punishment, Pharaoh's servants will be crying out for Israel to leave. Israel's crying out from slavery early on in the book would be exchanged for the Egyptians crying out for freedom from God's punishment. Even though Pharaoh will not listen, God's people will still be freed. And there's a purpose clause in verse 9. Take a look at verse 9. Exodus 11, verse 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that, or more precisely, so that, that's the purpose clause there, Pharaoh will not listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. God's power is to be multiplied in Egypt. God promised to show the world that he is the reigning superpower. Egypt, in Egypt, the king was often worshipped. In fact, he and the firstborn son uh, were often thought to be gods in Egypt. But Yahweh is concerned to let the world know that there is only one living and true God. The only reason that Israel is going to be spared from this plague is because they sacrificed a Passover lamb and spread its blood across the doorpost of their home in the lintels. That lamb died in the place of the sons who deserve death. Now, if you skip over to chapter 12, go ahead and skip over to chapter 12, verse 29. You'll see that God has the power to keep these promises. He has the power to keep His promises. He puts the sons of Egypt to death and He spares the sons of Israel. Begin reading there in Exodus chapter 12, verse 29 to 32. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborns in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. And bless me also. This is a sobering section of Scripture. And it's the backstory behind the phrase in Psalm 114.1 when Israel went out from Egypt. Moses is very restrained in his retelling of the death of the firstborn sons of Egypt. God promised to strike down the firstborn of Egypt. He promised a great cry in Egypt, and he promised deliverance, and and here that's what we see in these verses. What is the main imperative of Psalm 114? Was it not tremble? Tremble before the God who has the power to crush the world's superpowers. And if you don't think he can do it today, you are sorely mistaken. Tremble before the God who holds life and death in his hands. 
Tremble before the God who has the power to require of you your life. Tremble before the Lord who has the power to punish sin. Tremble before the Lord who has the power to preserve and save sinners. This event, this Passover event, became the Old Testament paradigm and the New Testament for salvation. And the New Testament authors understood these events to be pointing forward to Jesus, the Passover lamb. So in John's gospel, in John chapter 1, verse 29, we see Jesus called the lamb who will take away the sins of the world. Just like the Passover lamb, Jesus was spotless and without blemish. The Apostle Paul says that Jesus knew no sin in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. If you were to read the New Testament Gospels this afternoon and just go and read the portion in which the passion narrative, Jesus' death, you would see that Jesus was crucified, slain at the time of Passover. And even more specifically, Mark's Gospel tells us that he died as evening or twilight was approaching. Just as Israel was preserved by the blood of a Passover lamb. So Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 tells us that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, that He is the one who freed us from our sins by His blood. You see, the only way to be preserved from God's punishment due to sin is through hiding yourself under the blood of God's final Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. When you think about God's power displayed in the Exodus, Remember that Jesus accomplished an exodus too. In Luke chapter 9, verse 31, during the scene of transfiguration, we are told that Jesus spoke about his exodus with Moses and Elijah. Jesus, he died on the cross, shedding his blood as God's final Passover lamb. But three days later, he broke the enslaving chains of sin and death by his resurrection from the grave. Are you hiding yourself under the blood of Jesus, our Passover lamb? As we sang earlier, do you worship him with trembling hope and penitential tears? Psalm 114.1 tells us that Israel came up out of Egypt. In this, God's power was displayed in the tenth and final plague. And yet, if you can believe it, God wasn't done making His power and might known to Israel in Egypt. Do you remember what Psalm 114.3 said? It said that when Israel came up out of Egypt, the sea looked and fled. The sea ran away in fear like a scolded dog. This is the, the second phrase in Psalm 114 that we need to unpack and see how it speaks of God's power. The sea looked and fled. So do you know what that's referring to? It's referring to God's display of power in parting the Red Sea. So skip ahead to Exodus chapter 14. That's on page 56, I think, of the Bibles provided. As Israel has come up out of Egypt, they, they, they looted the Egyptians as they left. And now they've begun their journey to the promised land of Canaan. God, having rescued and redeemed his treasured possession from Egypt, now walks with his people making his presence known among them in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And Pharaoh, Pharaoh is beginning to have second thoughts about letting Israel go. The chapter opens by setting the stage for the final calamity that the Lord will pour out upon Pharaoh and Egypt. Israel stood in the wilderness 
with the Red Sea at their backs and the terrifying army of Egypt before them. They seem to have no way of escape. They're cornered and they're confused. And in their minds, the only way that they could maintain their freedom was by going through the Egyptian army. But, but they have chariots. Moses gives Israel three admonitions. Do not fear. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. In other words, they are to fear the Lord, not Pharaoh and his army. Amazingly, the Lord makes it clear to Moses that the people will not go through the Egyptian army, but through the sea. The sea is is arguably a greater obstacle, a greater problem than the Egyptian army. The Lord does not plan to take his people around their problem, but through their problem. Moses, he is to, in this chapter we learn, to lift up his staff and the sea will divide and Israel will walk through the sea on dry ground. This is what Psalm 114.3 spoke of when it said the sea looked and fled. So with that in mind, read Exodus chapter 14. Begin there in verse 21 and tremble at the power of God we see display here. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots of the horsemen. And of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. In this miraculous and supernatural event, we very clearly see the Lord's power over creation. The Lord creates a dry path in the Red Sea through which somewhere around a million people cross. By His power, He walls up the waters on the right and on the left. By His power, He makes the wheels of the Egyptian chariots heavy, preventing them from catching His people. When His people safely cross, the Lord powerfully covers the Egyptians with those walls of water. And if you look back in verse 28, you'll see the totality of Egypt's destruction. All of the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. Friends, brothers and sisters, tremble 
at the power of God over creation. Would you, like Pharaoh, try and test this God? Pharaoh said no. He refused. He rebelled. Would you, like Pharaoh, try and test this God? Are you trying and testing Him now with your sin? Are you refusing Him and rebelling against Him? Are you saying with your life, I know the way you want me to go, but I will go my own way? Be warned. Be wise. The sea looked and fled. If the winds and the waves obey God, as we know they did when Jesus said, peace be still, do you think you should obey him too? How much more should we tremble in utter humility and thanks when we know that our God has exercised his power not to punish us, but to save us? That is what God was doing here. You read Exodus chapter 14, verses 30 and 31. Look at verses 30 and 31. Thus, in this way, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. Israel feared the Lord who rescued them. They, they feared Him. They, they trembled before Him. In the sense that they, they honored and revered Him. One of the aims of God's powerful salvation is the exchange of fear. In salvation, God exchanges the, the fear of circumstances, threats, and people for the fear of God. God turns our hearts from trusting in other things and people to trusting in Him. Brothers and sisters, that's what He's done in our lives. He has moved us from trusting in our own goodness and power to keep His commands to trusting in His powerful work in Christ. And He's done it by showing us that we're weak. He showed each one of us that we were enslaved and that our enemy was strong and in hot pursuit of us. And still He shows us that Christ's cross and resurrection are more powerful than our enemies of sin and death. The first half of Psalm 114 verse 3 declares, the sea looked and fled. But there's a second half to that verse 2. Here it is in full. Verse 3 of Psalm 114, the sea looked and fled, the Jordan turned back. The, the, the reference to the Jordan River turning back is a reference to when God led Israel into the promised land in the book of Joshua. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles fast forward, so to speak, in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 3. You can uh, find the passage on page 179 of the Bibles provided. Joshua chapter 3. And there's, there's something special that we need to see in this text of Joshua. A, a, a development of sorts. The book of Joshua describes the people of Israel invading, conquering, distributing, and inhabiting the promised land of Canaan by the power of God. Joshua, he has been commissioned as the leader of Israel after Moses' death. And here we see Israel literally taking their first steps into the promised land under his command. Let's begin by reading Joshua chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. 
And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God, beginning, uh, being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go. For you have not passed this way before. And Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Israel is to obey the command of God to pass over the Jordan and enter into the promised land. But there's a problem. It's another body of water. The Jordan stands in the way of Israel. How are they supposed to cross this river? Well, this is where God's presence with His people comes into view and resolves this problem. The first sign of God's presence is is not in verse 5 when Joshua tells uh, Israel that the Lord will do wonders among you. But when we read of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord being carried by the priests, that the tabernacle was where God made His presence known. And the Ark of the Covenant was the central piece of furniture in the tabernacle. In many ways, the Ark functioned as the earthly footstool of God's throne. And with this in mind, take a look there at verse 8 of Joshua chapter 3. Verses 8 to 10. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, that He will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. It becomes clear that God is going to solve the problem that is before the people of the Jordan River. And it's clear from Joshua's words there in verses 9 and 10 that God's solution to this problem is to teach them something. You see that there? From this event, Israel is to know that God is, as verse 10 says, among you. God's presence among His people not only ensures that the problem of the Jordan will be resolved, but also that it ensures the problem of the current inhabitants will be resolved. God will, without fail drive them out. But, but by what action will Israel know that the living God is among them? We find it in verses 14 to 17 where in the words of Psalm 114 the Jordan is turned back. Look, look at verses 14 to 17. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan And the feet of the priest bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now, the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside the Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. See there in verse 15, we're we're brought right up to the edge of the Jordan. And we're told that as soon as the priests dipped their feet into the water, something happened. We're told 
we get this narrative comment there, you see in those parentheses, that the, the banks of the river are overflowing. Right? It's normally the, the Jordan River would be about 90 to 100 feet wide and 3 to 10 feet deep. But now it's even deeper and even wider. God waited. God waited for the time of year in which crossing the river would be the most difficult. He waited for that time. He chose the most difficult circumstances so that he could display his presence and power all the more clearly. So as, as soon as the priests put their feet in the water, in the seasonally wide and deep waters of the Jordan, something happened. The waters from above stood and rose up in a heap. They didn't just do something completely unnatural to them. They didn't just stand up in a heap. They did it, as verse 16 says, as far away as the city of Adam. The city of Adam is about 19 miles away from the point of this crossing. We're given this distance, right, to display God's power. There's no way that water is going to come anywhere near God's people. There's other notes about the water that teach us about God's power. We're told in verse 16 that the waters flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. It's almost as if God is sitting there on his throne in the middle of the Jordan with his arms stretched out, not allowing those waters to come anywhere near his people. He is powerful. It's this description of God's power and strength that is more than sufficient. But then verse 17, the narrator, he wants to underscore this for us. He underscores God's power and presence. He does it not once, but twice. And we're told that not only do the priests stand on dry ground, but all of Israel passes over on dry ground. And that should, of course, remind us of what happened with the Red Sea. Now think about this, brothers and sisters. Think about these two events, the, the exodus and the entry into the promised land. Is it really surprising that God chooses what seems to be impossibly difficult circumstances to display His great power. Have you ever found that to be true in your life? Do you find that to be true now? Do you find yourself in impossibly difficult circumstances? Do you find yourself in a situation where you feel like, I've got no way out. I've got a sea behind me and an army before me. How will I get out? God brings his people to the edge of an insurmountable problem so that he can take us through it. He is right there in the Jordan, among his people, with his people, helping them to safety. Now imagine what the readers of Psalm 114 would have thought when they pondered this, the presence of God when the Jordan turned back. Those saints in exile would have been encouraged to remember that just, just as God was with his people in Egypt and he, he rescued them from slavery, parting the Red Sea, wandering through the wilderness, feeding them from heaven and, and entering into the promised land, so God would be with them in the hardship of the exile and whatever lay before them. Christian, God is with you Two. Here's where we need to turn back and, and take a look at something in Psalm 114 more clearly. We need to see how God's presence and power actually go hand in hand. So turn back to Psalm 114. Uh, I think that's on page 510 of the Bibles provided. We've, we've honestly, we've kind of skipped over something that's pretty significant 
in, 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 this, in this psalm, in this detour of filling in the backstory. When you get back to Psalm 114, find verse 2. Verse 2 tells us why God made His power known through His presence. What was God's purpose in rescuing a people and giving them a place? Psalm 114, 2. Judah became His sanctuary. Israel, His dominion. That verse, I think, should leave us in awe and wonder. All at once, it tells us that God rules the whole of His people. Right? He, he rules the, the northern tribes and he, he rules the southern tribes. He takes all of them in His arms. All at once, this verse tells us that God rules the whole of His people, but that He doesn't do it at a distance from them. For His people are His sanctuary. He dwells among them. He has long told Israel, you will be my people and I will be your God and I will make my dwelling among you. God settles down and lives with His people. Right? That's what His tent was for, His tabernacle was for. In the Old Testament, that was where He lived, among their tents. This is why God made His power and presence known for the salvation of His people so that He might live with them and love them. Christian, does this remind you of our salvation in Jesus Christ? How did, how did John's gospel open? One of the first things first things the Apostle John says is this, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled, dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, when the eternal Son of God took on flesh and made His presence known in this world in human form, He did it so that He might dwell with us. And still, God's presence with His people continues to develop as we move across the New Testament. So in John chapter 14, verses 16 to 17, Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit. And Jesus tells us that the Spirit will dwell with us and within us. And then, of course, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, the Apostle Paul declares that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You see, even way back in Psalm 114, God was making His presence known among His people in profoundly meaningful ways. Now, we who are in Christ have the privilege of knowing His presence personally and intimately. Just as God's presence in the person of Jesus had earth-shaking consequences in world history, so God's presence in the past had earth-shaking consequences. Take a look at verse 4 of Psalm 114 again. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. This seems uh, poetically playful, doesn't it? Have you ever seen little, I, honestly, I watched a few videos on some lambs skipping uh, this past week. Have you seen little lambs skip and, and bound? It's cute, right? It, full of energy. They bound across the grass. Or, or, or rams jumping off of cliffs from one cliff to the next. Skipping is, is an image full of, of energy and movement. But what is the poet trying to communicate with these images? In biblical literature, the mountains and the hills are objects which are firm and fixed. They are inflexible. They're, they're immovable. And yet, how's the poet describing them? He's describing those firm and fixed objects as moving with energy, as bounding. In this poetry, 
We're meant to understand that the, the most fixed and immovable objects in creation are bounding in fear and fright in the presence of the Lord. Do you remember what happened when the Lord descended on Mount Sinai to lay down His law? This is what we read in Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 to 18. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. The, the, the mountains skipping like rams and the hills like lambs means that they are like little flocks scurrying away. The whole notion of fear is seen in those questions there in verses 5 and 6. The psalmist is asking the created order, why are you so afraid? Why are you afraid, Red Sea? What, what, are, what are you afraid of, Jordan? What are you afraid of, mountains and hills? What has you quaking and trembling and shaking? The answer is there in verse 7, isn't it? The sea, the Jordan, the mountains, and the hills tremble at the presence of the Lord. But, but why trembles at the presence of the Lord? Because the Lord is coming in judgment. The Lord is coming in judgment. The, the Lord came in judgment at the Red Sea. Right? He judged the Egyptians. He, he came in judgment at the Jordan River. The peoples of Canaan were going to be defeated. The Old Testament prophets speak, uh, they, they link the shaking and quaking of mountains with Yahweh's coming in judgment. So, for example, when the prophet Nahum speaks of Yahweh coming in judgment, he says this in Nahum chapter uh, 1, verses 5 and 6. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger, his wrath poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him? And then you have Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence. Or Habakkuk, chapter 3, verse 6. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. And all of this, all of this looks forward to the final judgment where the Lord will shake the earth once more. Consider what the Apostle John says in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne. It's a judgment seat. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away. Psalm 114 calls for the whole earth to tremble, to disclose their fear and reverence before the Lord. What do you think Jesus was doing when he held this psalm in his hands before his death and was thinking about the judgment of God? Why do you think he was so careful in that garden asking about that cup, that cup of judgment? Because he knew what God can do in his judgment. This psalm is a call for the whole earth to fear the Lord. To disclose our reverence of Him. This is a call for Israel. A 
call for the nations. It's a call for us. All who are in sin and under God's just wrath are in danger of facing the fearful prospect of God's divine power and presence in judgment. What hope, what hope do sinners like us have before the holy God? We have the hope that's presented there in verse 8 and fulfilled in Jesus. Yahweh, the God of Jacob, turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. This is, this is when you say to yourself, wait, what? Uh, how is this our hope? Why should this make us tremble before the Lord, not in fear of facing His judgment, but in faith because He loves us? How is this our, our hope? Because these two phrases refer to a wonderful event where God's, he, he displays His mercy to His people. You see, what's past really is prologue in the Bible. That first phrase there in verse 8, who turns the rock into a pool of water, refers to a, a miraculous event that took place once again in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 17. We've got to go there. So turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. It's on page 59 of the Bibles provided. In Exodus 17, we, we find the people of Israel in the wilderness uh, doing what, really what they always do in the wilderness, which is complain. The people of Israel are in the wilderness complaining, sinning against God. They complain that they have no water to drink. They demand that Moses give them water. And then Moses answers them halfway through verse 2 in Exodus 17. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So, you see, here we see in that, that phrase in Psalm 114.8, who turns the, the rock into a pool of water, refers to God. Being merciful and gracious to a people who are worthy of judgment. The comfort of Psalm 114.8 then is that we can tremble before the Lord in faith because He's merciful and gracious to sinners like us. But remember, He is merciful and gracious because of, or we could say through, judgment. You see, a kind of, a kind of judgment occurs here. That rock is punished. It's beaten. It's struck. Notice who, though, in verse 6 is standing before, standing on that rock, standing before the swinging staff of Moses. Moses' staff, remember, has been used as an instrument of judgment, instrument of judgment on Egypt. Who is taking that punishment and judgment for Israel's sin? How is it that living waters flow from that rock? Now, Christian, think of the larger storyline of the Bible. Did you know that looking at this event in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus was the rock in the wilderness from whom his people drank? 
Think about this, Christian. Who was struck for sin? Who was it that said in John chapter 4, verse 37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Out of whose side did blood and water flow when he was crucified, struck for sin, and pierced for our transgressions? The reason, the only reason that we may tremble before the Lord in faith, and and not in fear of judgment, is because he has provided rivers of living water in Jesus Christ. It's because Jesus was struck for us, for our sin, and for our salvation. And friend, if you, if you are here this morning, you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to urge you to tremble before God today for how you have sinned against Him. Having trembled, turn from your sin and put your trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. Believe that Jesus lived, died, and was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. Believe that Jesus was struck with judgment. The judgment that your sins deserve. And he was raised so that you might be forgiven and welcomed by God. See, Psalm 114, it issues to us a warning, but it also issues a welcome. This psalm is is an invitation to come and praise the God who saves. It's a psalm that, in its essence, invites us to, as Revelation chapter 22, verse 17 says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Friend, come. Come to the Lord Jesus. And as we conclude, one last time, we need to consider the the words of Psalm 114 on the lips of Jesus. Right In the last days, perhaps even the last hours, Jesus held this psalm in his hands and he praised his Father in heaven. In this psalm, he sung not only of God's past work for his people, but a psalm which prefigured his own work as our God and Redeemer. As Israel was led out of Egypt because of the blood of the Lamb, so Jesus would shed his blood to lead his people out of slavery to sin. As Joshua led Israel across the Jordan and into the promised land, so Jesus, the the new Joshua, would begin leading his people home. To the promised land of heaven. As the earth shook at the presence of the Lord in judgment, so when Jesus died on the cross, we read this in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Psalm 114 teaches us as Christians that we should tremble in faith before God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has made known His saving power through His presence. We tremble and we trust and we wait in hope for Him to return once and for all to make known His saving power through His presence. Let's pray together.